What is the cross without the resurrection? Now, of course, in scripture, that question makes no sense. You can't ask that question. The cross is truly not the cross as we know it without the resurrection. Those two cannot be separated. To speak of the one in scripture is implicitly to assume and reference the other. But hypothetically, let's ask the question hypothetically, if we could somehow have the cross without what the resurrection achieved, what would the cross be? It would be the payment of sin without forgiveness. Payment for sin without the consequent verdict of justification. It would be the, somehow, the defeat of death without the realization of life. Release from the grip of death. It would be the putting away of our old selves our former selves, without the emergence of a new self. It would be absurd. It wouldn't make any sense. And so Paul, in one of my favorite passages today that I'm so excited uh, to preach, in fact, um, I always tell Anne this, and uh, she, she says, you're going to have to write that down somewhere. Uh, when I die, if I die before Christ comes again, this is the passage I want preached at my funeral. Um, so you have to remind her if I die before her. Um, but this is one of my favorite passages, and I hope you see why it's such a fitting passage uh, for an occasion like that. Because in this passage, Paul argues this. Um, he argues that Christ's resurrection secures our future resurrection. I hope you saw that as Sam read it for us. That Christ's resurrection is representative, that he represents us. He stands in for us when he is raised from the dead, such that scripture says we will be raised with him someday. And what we'll do today is we're going to focus in really on verses 20 and 23. Uh, this chapter is quite large, and so just to kind of make it manageable, we'll look at verses 20 and 23, of course, in context. Um, and our, our roadmap then is going to be to look at two analogies that Christ uses to explain, or that Paul uses to explain Christ's resurrection, and then we'll spend time looking at why this matters. So what? What is the significance and what is our response to this truth? So first, the first analogy is that Christ is the first fruits. Paul says this in verse 20. He says, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. And he describes him this way. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And this word, this term fallen asleep, that's a euphemism. Kind of like we would say uh, so-and-so has passed away. It's sort of a polite way of referring to someone dying. So they would refer to someone as fallen asleep. Um, and this idea of fallen asleep, um, one scholar noted that it's this is only used in the New Testament to refer to believers who have died. The implication of falling asleep, of course, is that someone is going to wake up again. And so even that language signals hope and resurrection. But Paul, notice, designates Christ as the firstfruits for those then who have died. The firstfruits of the category of dead believers. 
Now, this idea of first fruits is imagery that comes from uh, that of farming or that of a harvest. Um, so when you were a farmer and you were growing whatever wheat or barley or what have you, the first fruits was the first part of your crop that came in. It was the first fruit, the first that gave fruit. And by being the first, it was a signal that there was more to come, right? It represented something of all the harvest that would eventually grow into your field. We might think of it in our context. I don't think we have, well, my father-in-law is a farmer, but I don't think there's anyone else in, the, in, the, uh, in our congregation right now that would be, have background in farming that I know of. Maybe a way that we can think about it uh, would be like that first snowfall. And it sort of ominously signals that winter is coming. And if you're like me, that's a sad day, right? Like, ah, oh, no, that's the first, what do we say, the first snowfall. By saying first, it assumes there's more coming. Okay, or on days like today, the first sort of day, not today, not that today is the first day of spring, but when you have that first day where it's kind of nice out finally, you're like, ah, summer is coming, right? It signals something, of, something much bigger than the day in itself. And so what Paul is arguing here is that Christ in his resurrection, his resurrection is the first resurrection of a larger resurrection. His is the first fruit of a full harvest of resurrection for all those who are united to him, that all those who belong to him. You see, even as we read, um, as Sam read the whole chapter for us, we see that the Corinthians are denying the resurrection. Hopefully you notice that. He's, He's writing this chapter because there are those in the Corinthian church that were denying the resurrection of the body. It didn't seem that they were denying Christ's resurrection, but Paul can assume that, that they agree with him on that but they were denying the resurrection of believers. And it's likely here that they were succumbing to the influence of their culture. Corinth being a Greek city, uh, Greek philosophy oftentimes saw the body as sort of this um, unfortunate reality that we bear. Um, Won't it be nice someday when we die and get to put off this nasty physical shell that we live in? was sort of the idea. So they believed in the immortality of the soul, that we continued on, but thank goodness we get to continue on disembodied someday, away from this physical body. And so very likely, the Corinthians are letting the surrounding ideas of the culture uh, inform their Christianity, right? Sound familiar? We can do that today too, right? We let the culture sort of inform how we think about our Christianity, and they're doing the same thing. And Paul says that when you do this, when you deny the physical resurrection, you're actually denying the gospel itself. That's why, at the very beginning of the chapter, Paul reminds them of the gospel. You may think, well, why is he doing that? Why is he reminding them of the gospel? He's doing that because he's saying when you deny the resurrection of believers, you are, in effect, denying what we believe about the very central element of our faith, that Christ himself rose from the dead. And so he says, I'm reminding you of first importance. What, what, what I received, that Christ died according to scripture, he was buried, and he rose according to scripture, and he appeared to many, many people saw him. Why does Paul then say, hey, why does he link those two? You're denying the resurrection of believers with a denial, an implicit denial. If you hold that consistently, it would imply a denial of Christ's resurrection. 
In other words, this is the part I don't want you to miss. Those two are linked, Paul is saying. He's assuming that those two are linked, that when Christ is raised, it means the resurrection for all those who are joined to Christ by faith. And this is what he argues. This is the assumption behind his argument in verses 12 to 19. He's going, in verses 12 to 19, he's going to take them to the logical conclusion of their position. He's going to say, if you deny the resurrection of believers, that means implicitly that then not even Christ would be raised. Because if Christ would be raised, that means that believers are raised. So if you deny that we are raised, then you must deny that Christ is raised. And if you deny that Christ is raised, then we are still in our sins. Those who have died have perished. So look at this argument with me. He takes them to the absurdity the, the absurd conclusion of their position. Look at this in verse 12 to follow, in following. He says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which is what he just got done saying he proclaims, the gospel, well then how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? Now that on its own, we might say, well, of course you could argue those things. You can say Christ is raised, but no one else is. And he's saying, no, 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 no. Those go together. But if there is no resurrection of the dead generally, well, that means that not even Christ has been raised. He's the first fruit of that greater harvest of resurrection. So if there's no harvest, there's no first fruit. Verse 14, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. It's worthless. Our gospel, it doesn't do anything. And that means your faith is also in vain. Your faith is worthless. In fact, we are even found to be lying about God, to be misrepresenting God, because we are testifying about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it's true that the, jet, the dead in general are not raised. Verse 16, for if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless, it's futile. Namely, you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, dead believers, that is, they've perished, they're damned, they have no salvation. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Why? Because again, Paul assumes a link between Christ's resurrection and ours. Christ's re Christ represents us in his resurrection such that Christ's resurrection secures our future resurrection. That is what we are celebrating, among other things, on Easter, is that Christ defeated death not only for himself, but on our behalf. Just as he defeated sin for us in his death, so he achieves resurrection for us in his own resurrection. The second image that Paul gives, we find in verse 21 and 22. He says, For as by a man came death. Now, who is that man uh, by whom comes death? That, of course, is Adam, as he'll go on to explain. By a man has also then come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, those who are united to Adam, and that's all of us by nature of being human, for as in Adam, all die. We all receive death because we are joined to Adam in his sin and in, in, in his rebellion. So also then in Christ, those who are in Christ, shall all those in him be made alive. They shall be raised from the dead. So this is the second image. He first gives the image of first fruits from the harvest. Now he gives the image of our humanity, our collective humanity represented in the first human, Adam. 
Adam, in other words, represents humanity. The way I've sometimes uh, thought about this is you might think of Adam, you might think of us, we just got done with March Madness, right? And I actually didn't watch like any of the games, but uh, maybe you're like me and you didn't watch it, but you know it's out there, it exists out there somewhere in the world. There's this March Madness tournament happening, basketball. And one of the things that you may or may not know about basketball, like most sports, team sports that is, is that when someone commits a foul on the team, it gets tallied as a foul for the whole team, right? So in basketball, I believe they get like five fouls personally before they have to get eliminated from the game. But also, if you foul, your whole team gets a foul counted against it, right? And eventually there's consequences for that and such. We might think of it this way, that Adam and Christ are like two team captains. So that what Adam does affects his whole team. That when he calls timeout, just as a player calls timeout, it's not just for them. Their whole team gets a timeout, right? So when Adam sins, we become sinners by consequence of being on his team, by being considered united to Adam and his actions. He is a corporate human. He is a, he is a public person, as some have said. He represents all of us. And so likewise, Christ is the team captain of a new humanity. He is a new Adam, such that what he does affects and is on behalf of all of those who are united to him, all those that he represents. Christ represents all those united to him by faith, a new humanity. What the, and what the, the first Adam did, the second Adam has come to undo. Whereas the first Adam brought sin and death, the second Adam brings justification and life. We see this, for example, in Romans 5. Um, uh, this is the other, there's two main passages where Paul uses this imagery of Christ as a second Adam. Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 5. In Romans 5, Paul's main point there is that Adam's uh, rebellion brought sin and it brought condemnation. It's, he has a legal focus, our judgment in Adam. And so whereas by Adam's disobedience, we are made sinners, we are condemned. So by Christ's obedience, obeying to the point of death on a cross, we achieve forgiveness and justification, a status of righteousness before God. Here in 1 Corinthians 15, he argues very similarly. But here, Christ represents us in his death and resurrection. He defeats death and he achieves resurrection life for himself and by extension, all those united to him. Christ comes to undo what the first Adam does. He takes on a human body so that in that human body, he might find death and blot it out, as Athanasius says. Christ becomes our substitute, bearing our death for us, and he is a representative, raising to life on our behalf so that all of us who are with him, we get to raise with him one day. As Paul says, as we have borne the image of the first Adam, Adam was created in the image of God and we all bear the image of God, but that image is marred as we are like Adam. We bear Adam's image. So now as believers, those who are united to Christ, we are being made like Christ, the new Adam, the new and truest image of God. So the image of God is being renewed in believers as we are conformed into the image of Christ. And this, of course, happens in sanctification. We're familiar with that idea that we are being made like Christ progressively in this life. We are being conformed into the image of Christ. 
But ultimately, Paul says, that conformity to the image of Christ will even include the conformity of our bodies. Our bodies will be made like him. As Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from heaven we await our Savior who will make our lowly bodies like his at his coming. Look at what Paul says later on in this context. Um, In verse, let's look at, let's start at verse 47. He brings this idea of Adam up again, and he says, The first man, Adam, was from the earth, a man of dust. His origin is from the dust. Remember, God created Adam from the dust. The second man is from heaven, Christ. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And there he's talking about resurrection. Us being like Christ here is sanctification, yes, but sanctification including even the sanctification, the setting apart of our very bodies. As Paul says in Romans 8, we long for creation groans, longing for the redemption, the full adoption of believers. And he says that that full adoption, that full redemption is the redemption of our bodies. That will be our glorification. That will be our final full experience of salvation when Christ comes again and our bodies will be raised. And he says that that's the, that's the order we must understand. As he's given us these two images, first fruits and second Adam, he says in verse 23, but each in his own order. In other words, Christ is raised and he has already defeated death. He's already accomplished our resurrection. And there's a sense in which we participate in that even now as we are raised spiritually. Paul can say that we've been raised with Christ in Ephesians 2 and Colossians 3 and Romans 6. So we're already raised inwardly and that, that we're, we're, we're bearing the fruit of that resurrection existence, spiritually speaking. And yet our future physical resurrection, when our physical bodies catch up with our inward resurrection, that awaits the future. He says, but each in his own order. First we have Christ, the first fruits, and then at Christ's coming, when Jesus comes again, then it will be those who belong to Christ. That is the order of things. Even though Jesus has already accomplished the defeat of death and resurrection, we wait to experience it in full when he comes again. And this is why scripture talks about how we are, when it talks about our future resurrection, oftentimes it uses this language of raised with Christ. In other words, it's not simply that God raised Jesus and sort of a disconnected reality from that, he's going to raise us. But our future resurrection is a resurrection with Christ. Even though it's separated by time and space, it is all part of one resurrection harvest. Our future resurrection is, it will be a participation in the resurrection that Jesus has already experienced. That when he walked out of the tomb, that is our eventual walking out of the tomb. We experience salvation on the coattails of Jesus by being united to him. There is no salvation found in ourselves, but it is solely by finding what is in Christ. And so, as we saw, Paul argues that Christ's resurrection secures our future resurrection, and he gives us those two images, first fruits and second Adam. Now let's ask the question, why does this matter? 
So what do we do with this? This is what we celebrate on Easter. Among other things, when we celebrate Jesus' resurrection, we are celebrating our future hope of resurrection with him. Let me give you seven quick ways that we can respond to this or, or aspects that we can feel the significance. First, Christ's incarnation, his becoming a human being, and his resurrecting that human body, his taking on created form and redeeming, restoring created form, that is a huge signal that God cares about his creation. He does not abandon his creation, but he actually enters into his creation, takes it on in himself, and he restores it. In other words, our bodies matter. Okay, the, the, the Corinthians were falling prey to this idea. If you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, they were falling prey to this idea that their bodies didn't matter. They could sleep with prostitutes. They could commit sexual immorality. What they ate, what they did this doesn't matter because they had this idea that well, our bodies don't matter. They're just going to get tossed aside anyways. And what does Paul argue? One of the arguments he gives in 1 Corinthians uh, 6, verse 14, he says, And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In other words, we know that God cares about our bodies because he's going to raise them up. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 that the body that will be raised is this one. What, it's the body that's sown. Our body, he, he, there he gives the image of like a seed that's planted. It's not a different body that we get. We're not going to get a replacement body. God doesn't replace his creation. He saves his creation. He restores, he redeems his creation. And so he's going to redeem this creation too, this body that he has created. Likewise, in Romans 8, when Paul is talking about the resurrection of our bodies there, he also talks about it in terms of creation, that creation is groaning because his create, the created world, that is, it, it, it too will uh, experience a resurrection with ours. That as with Adam's sin, creation fell and was cursed, the created order is now cursed, so as the new Adam raises and as all the new humanity raises with him, Creation groans waiting for the redemption of our bodies because when we are raised, creation itself will be restored. There will be a new creation. And so as Christians, we, we, we reject that idea that can sometimes be very common, that we, we shouldn't really care about our bodies or it doesn't really matter how we treat creation, how we treat this world, how we treat nature, because it's all going to get tossed aside. It's all going to get burned up anyways. That's a misunderstanding of 2 Peter 3. But this idea that we just like, we don't need to care about the natural world. No, God is in the resurrection. God is communicating to us. He values our bodies. He values creation. He values nature. And so should we. We should care about these things. This also shows us too, as, a, as an aside here, this also shows us um, sometimes it's popular for people to think about our future destiny. You'll hear people say that the goal of our salvation is that we can... Uh, go to heaven one day. Um, we can be in heaven. And there's kind of this idea that the ultimate end of the Christian life is when we die and we go to heaven. It's actually not true. It is true that when you die as a believer before Christ's coming, that you will be with Christ in heaven. Scripture does say that. But the idea that that's the end goal, that's not true. There's that song that some of you may know, um, I don't know when it was written. It kind of has like a hymny sound, like a bluegrassy sound. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. That's actually, that's actually not accurate. 
Um, it, it goes, this world is just my home. I'm just a passing through something or another, the world beyond the blue. I don't remember all the words, right? Okay, but if we were to change that theology and make it accurate, we would say heaven is not my home. I'll just be passing through. You see, right? Because God is actually going to raise us from the dead to live on a new creation, to live in bodied form. We're not, our, our ultimate goal is to not die and live in some floaty place for eternity, disembodied spirits. No, he is going to redeem our physical bodies. He's going to redeem this world. And so even now, we invest in seeking to, to see how we treat this world, how we treat our bodies, how we care for society, that it matters. And God's resurrection of Christ is a testimony to that. All right, secondly, we see that this life is not in vain because of the resurrection. Notice how Paul ends his argument in chapter 15. He says this. He says this in verse 58. This is how he concludes. He says, Therefore, because of the resurrection, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, when I hear that word vain, vanity, it makes me think of one of my favorite books from the Old Testament. Do you know what book I'm talking about? My eyes are still really blurry, so I can't see like any of you. So you may be nodding with me, but I can't tell. I think of the book of Ecclesiastes, okay? The book of Ecclesiastes, which over and over says vanity, vanity, all is vanity. Whatever uh, this Solomon-type figure goes and looks at, he sees that it's vanity. And one of the things that's sort of the backstop, no matter, there's a lot of vanity in this life, but even if things seem to go decently, one of the things at the end of it all that always makes it vanity is what? death. Even if you can accumulate a bunch of money, even if you can accumulate a lot of wisdom, even if you can have a lot of pleasure, it's, at, it's what, 70 years? You're still going to die. So Albert Camus, in uh, his book, I think it was the book, The Myth of Syphysis, um, he's an Algerian philosopher who died in the 50s, not a believer. Uh, he opens that book by saying the ultimate question, the ultimate philosophical question, we can talk about the existence of the soul, we can talk about the meaning of knowledge, all this stuff. He says, all that is rubbish. What, what is the most important question is the question of suicide. That's the ultimate philosophical question. Why shouldn't I just kill myself right now? I'm going to die anyways. What does it matter? Leo Tolstoy embodies this angst that I think Ecclesiastes has this way. Leo Tolstoy, he was a Christian, a Russian author. He wrote this. He said, My question, that which at the age of 50 brought me to the verge of suicide, was the simplest of questions. Lying in the soul of every man, a question without an answer to which one cannot live, it was this. What will come of what I am doing today or tomorrow? What will come of my whole life? Why should I live? Why should I wish for anything or do anything? It can also be expressed this way. Is there any meaning in my life that the inevitable death awaiting me does not destroy? That is life, if we're honest with ourselves, apart from the future hope of resurrection. And yet Christ conquers that vanity. By conquering death, Jesus conquers vanity, and he gives us reason to live. 
He gives us reason that we can notice this. Labor not in vain. Do you see how Paul connects those two? The resurrection means that we can labor not in vain. We have meaning to this life because there is a life beyond this life. Thirdly, we don't mourn as the world does, as those without hope. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 says this. Paul there is about to talk about the resurrection. And he says this. We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, about the believers who have died. Why does he not want them to be informed? He wants to tell them about the resurrection. He wants to clear up their theology, make sure they're not confused, so that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. Notice, he doesn't say so that you won't grieve. As believers, we still grieve death. Death is an enemy, Paul says. Death, sometimes we can glamorize death because I think we have a faulty theology. So we think when someone dies, like, yay, they get to go to the floaty place. But like, that's not the end. Death is an enemy. And we can mourn death when people die. We ought to mourn death. Jesus mourned death at Lazarus' tomb. Let's not glorify death. Death is a sad thing. It is universally typical, but it is not normal. It is not the way things should be. It is intruder into God's creation. And so we mourn death, but he says we don't mourn as others do. We mourn in a different way. We mourn as those who, who, who it's not as those who lack hope, but we have hope. And what is that hope? Ultimately, he doesn't root it in heaven, that they go to heaven, although that's true. Okay, here, don't hear me wrong, that's true. But he, when he goes on in 1 Thessalonians 4, he goes on to articulate the hope of resurrection. The reason we mourn without, with not lacking hope, the reason that when we bury our loved ones in, in the ground and we have hope is because we know they will rise someday. Death is a temporary sentence. And so we can, we can mock death the same way Paul does at the end of this chapter. Death is swallowed up in victory. Then when Christ comes again, it's that when Christ comes again and he raises the dead, at that point, death will be destroyed. And we say, death, where's your victory now? Oh, death, where's that sting that we felt? As Athanasius says, now, therefore, when we die, we no longer do so as men condemned to death, sentenced permanently to death, but as those who are even now in the process of rising. Fourthly, our future resurrection in Christ, with Christ, gives us reason to persevere. Paul also signals this at the end as he concludes. Therefore, verse 58, therefore, my beloved brothers, notice this, be steadfast, be immovable. Don't move, don't shift, be steadfast. I love that language, immovable, like you can't shake us. Okay, and that's how he began the section too. He said, this gospel that I preached to you in which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word. In other words, the resurrection gives us reason to persevere in the faith. It gives us reason to continue and to be steadfast. By this gospel, we are being saved if we hold steadfast, be immovable, be steadfast. How does the resurrection energize and fuel our perseverance? You may think of it kind of like my recent eye surgery, right? No one would go through getting your eye lasered and the, and the, and the part of your eye peeled off, okay? That's not fun. No one would do that for no reason. 
I'll just tell you, if, if you're just thinking about, you know, I'll just go get some laser just for fun. I don't need it. Don't do it. It's a bad idea. Okay? It's painful. It's annoying. Your eyes are all watery. You can't see all this stuff. You've got to do drops and all this. It's annoying. But why do, why do I do it? Well, because I don't want to go blind. Right? There's some sort of gain to be had. Okay? I can bear with the fact that my eye, I, I can't see out of it right now. I can bear with the fact that my eye hurt for you know, three or four days or whatever, because there's some sort of gain to be had from it. And so, too, we can live this life faithfully following Christ. That, that's, a, that's a life of, of, of living crucified to Christ. Sometimes people say God has a wonderful plan for your life, and they mean all sort of interesting, odd things about it. We can say, we can agree with them in a way that God does have a wonderful plan for your life. It is to crucify you with Christ and to bury you with Christ so that he may one day raise you with Christ. And so we can live that life sacrificially for Christ, persevering, counting the cost, because resurrection awaits us with him. We will be glorified with him. If we have died with him, Paul says, we shall be raised with him. Fifthly, the resurrection gives us reason to labor. So if this life is not in vain, we labor not in vain. Emphasis now on the labor part of it. We labor not in vain. And I want to point us even to Paul's own experience, his own testimony. Look at verse 30 through 32. Here, in verses 29 to 34, Paul makes further arguments for the resurrection and he appeals to experience. And I want you to notice his own experience. He appeals to his own experience and he says this, If the dead are not raised, verse 30, why are we in danger every hour? Like, why would I live this way, endangering myself? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. I'm living like a dead man. I'm dying to myself every day. I'm subjecting myself to dangerous activities for the sake of the gospel, which would be stupid to do if this wasn't true. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus, if I'm persecuted by, by figuratively speaking, beasts? If the dead are not raised... You know, let us eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. If this life is all I have, let me live for this life. Why would I be living the way Paul does, he says? Why would I live like that? Going across the Roman Empire, being imprisoned, being beaten. The reason is, is because this life isn't the ultimate. There is resurrection that awaits. As one of my professors in seminary said, Dr. Carson, you can, you can, subject, you can be subjected to anything in this life, any suffering, or you can face any sickness, any illness in this life. Because, and he would say in his French-Canadian accent, there's nothing that a good resurrection can't fix. <laughs> and so Paul says in verse 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, he's assuming. Notice what he's assuming He's assuming that we're living our life in such a way that if the resurrection wasn't true, people would be like, wow, that's, that's really unfortunate how you're living your life because you're all in on that. You're sold out to that. Because the resurrection is true, that means we can live in such a way that is fully invested in that reality. In other words, sometimes people have this idea that, you know, if Christianity is or isn't true, their kind of life is the same regardless. Would your life be the same? Would you live your life the same way 
if Christianity wasn't true, and if it is, if you would be living your life essentially the same way, you're not living as Paul assumes that we are to be living here. We're to live our life in such a way that it would, it's so drastically different because we believe the resurrection that Paul says someone should be able to look at us and say, well, if that's not true, they are so banking their entire life on that that their life is like a waste. They are to be most pitied of all people. Do we live a life that otherwise would be pitiable, foolish, and in vain if the resurrection wasn't true? A life that Paul says, he's fighting beasts in Ephesus, he's sacrificing, he's living sold out for the gospel. And he can do that because there is hope of resurrection, no matter what happens to him. Sixthly, we see that we are to encourage one another with the reality of resurrection. And so if we were to go to 1 Thessalonians again, where we looked at before where Paul says that we are to grieve but not as those without hope, he conc- after talking about the resurrection, he, he concludes it this way in verse 18, 1 Thessalonians 4:18. He says, Therefore, encourage one another with these words. The words on resurrection. Therefore, what's my, what's my exhortation to you, he says, after talking about the resurrection? Encourage each other with this truth. Or he says in 1 Thessalonians 5.11, the next chapter, when he talks about how we will be raised with Christ, there he says almost the exact same thing. He says, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. And so as you, if you were at our Good Friday service, I made that point very briefly, that this encouragement is not, that, that, that the reality that we sit in in the death and resurrection of Christ is not just an individual thing we experience, but it's something that we ought to then try to see other people experience. That is a community project that we are encouraging one another. And so that's my challenge to you is how can we as a church, how can we be in very practical ways encouraging one another with the truth of the resurrection? How can we encourage one another as maybe someone in our church faces an illness or eventually faces terminal illness, death? or the death of loved ones, or maybe they're, they're living in a way that is making sacrifices on account of the gospel. And we can encourage them on and say, it's worth it. What you're doing is worth it. Or if someone is not living in that way and they need to be challenged, we can say, live this way, it's worth it. How can we not only uh, absorb that reality in our own thinking, into our own hearts, but then see other people, seek to see that encouraged throughout the congregation? Maybe it's writing someone a letter. Maybe it's, it's what you say in small groups. Maybe it's grabbing coffee with someone. We encourage one another to fix our hope. As Paul says, the, 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 the suffering that we experience in this life is not worth comparing to the glory that's going to be revealed. He says that in Romans 8, in the context of resurrection. And then seventhly, my seventh challenge is to those of you here today who are not yet believers in this resurrected Christ. We're so glad that you are with us today. Maybe you came out because it's Easter. Why not? That's a great Sunday to come, right? But our challenge to you would be to not just make this a Sunday event, an Easter event, but that you would genuinely consider for yourself where you stand with this resurrected Christ. And I would ask you to do a bit of an assessment, a a uh, inventory on your own need. Do you sense your need for Christ? Do you sense your need for an empty tomb? Do you sense your need for a risen Christ? What is your answer to the reality of death? 
you are going to die someday? What is your answer to the otherwise purposelessness of your life apart from an eternal resurrection? What hope or what comfort can you find for yourself in the face of death? What enables you to labor with any sense of purpose? And how will you stand before a holy God amidst your sin? And so we would love to see you also, as, as we do, putting our faith in Christ, looking to Jesus, the resurrected Christ, the one who died for our sin, the one who died the death that we deserve, lived the life that we ought to have lived, and raised for us so that we can live with him, putting your trust in him. There is no salvation in yourself. You cannot earn your salvation. If you could earn it, and if it was based on how you were good enough or the things you did, then God wouldn't have sent his son to do it in your place. The reason he sent his son is because you can't do it. And he has done it for you. Put your trust in him. We are saved by God's grace. That means it's a gift. You can't earn it. It is to be received by faith alone. Cast yourself on Christ. Leave nothing resting on yourself. Cast it all on Christ. The Lord's Supper, which we will now turn to celebrate, it is a picture of this gospel. The bread and the cup are emblems of Jesus' body and blood given in death for our salvation. The gospel, of course, it is a looking back sort of meal. It looks back to what was done when Jesus says on the cross, John 19, it is finished, it is paid in full. But the Lord's Supper is also a forward-looking meal. It looks to the future for the full, full experience of what was already accomplished by Christ. And this is why when uh, explaining the Lord's Supper, Paul can say this. He, he concludes by saying, for as often as you eat the bread and you drink the cup, you do what? You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Or Jesus, when he was instituting the Lord's Supper, says, I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. There's, there's a looking forward element to the meal. The meal we, this meal, we might say, it's, in some ways it's appropriate that we have such small portions because it's an appetizer for the greater meal. It's to get our taste buds ready for that greater meal when we experience our salvation in full. So the Lord's Supper is that forward-looking meal, and not, a meal not only about what has already been accomplished for us, but about what awaits us, our hope. And so as you partake of the Lord's Supper this morning, be encouraged by its promises and put your, your hope firmly upon what awaits us when Jesus returns.